today's episode, we are hosting Faisal and Hani from Jesse Finance. Uh, we are talking about family-owned businesses. Uh, family-owned businesses have been affected by the pandemic owing to some of the issues that will be highlighted into this podcast. Uh, the Economic Weekly is a podcast uh, which attempts to look into the traditional and digital economy and attempts to create a vision between the two. The aim is to explore e-commerce, payments, gig economy, and present to our listeners the opportunities and challenges in these new landscapes. Welcome to the show, Faisal and Hani. Thank you. Hi, Wanderi. Good morning, Wanderi. Yes, Hani, kindly take us kindly take us through family-owned businesses and your and the role you are playing at Jesse Finance. Thank you, Wanderi. Wanderi, I'm actually a partner at uh, CMS Daily and Enamda, a law firm, a law firm based here in Kenya. Um, we work closely with other organizations such as Jersey Finance um, and th- th- therefore uh, Faisal is representing Jersey Finance um, and I represent my organization. I'll quickly introduce myself, Wandiri, if that's okay. Um, I'm yes, a part- yes, go ahead. So I'm a partner in the corporate commercial and aviation uh, department uh, here at CMS Daily and Enamda. It's one of Kenya's oldest law firms. Um, we're part of CMS, which is a global uh, law firm. It's a global top 10 law firm. We have thousands of lawyers spread across the world. Um, and we, we, we're part of the CMS Africa group, which, which has a number of countries covered. Um, and our emphasis is on corporate commercial law. Uh, and we have quite a strong dispute resolution practice here in Kenya. Um, most of our partners are extremely experienced and we tend to represent a lot of the family businesses um, here in Kenya. Um, thank you very much, Hani. Uh, Wandiri, if I could uh, jump in and just introduce myself also, if that if that's okay with you. Okay, okay, go ahead. So, so as Hani pointed out, I'm the uh, representative for Jersey Finance. And, and you know, we obviously recently uh, we held a very successful event focused on uh, family businesses in collaboration with CMS. And Hani was, uh, had very kindly moderated an, uh, uh, an excellent panel discussion on the topic. Um, so, you know, we, we collaborate uh, very regularly uh, with key uh, partners within the Kenya market. But my, uh, um, my role at Jersey Finance is director for the Middle East, Africa and India. And Kenya forms a key part of my uh, remit, a key region within my, uh, you know, within my focus and uh, responsibility. Um, uh, and you know, I uh, from an you know from my personal background, I was born uh, in Malawi. Uh, so this is um, you know this is this is my uh, African part of uh, uh, you know my my connection to Africa, as it were. Uh, and, uh, and and you know we're uh, we're very pleased to be here this morning to share to share some of our thoughts uh, coming from that excellent event that we had, which you also very kindly attended. Yes, uh, thank you for that introduction, Hani uh, and Faisal. Briefly take us about the effect of the pandemic on family-owned businesses. Uh, thanks very much, Wandiri. Hani, uh, let, me, let me start with this and then perhaps you uh, uh, supplement uh, on my comments, if that's okay. Yes. Um, so so in, terms of, uh, in terms of your question, there's no denying uh, the fact that COVID-19 has had some level of impact on family businesses across the region, across the globe. Um, however, uh, you know, this, it's tested the resilience, the innovation and leadership uh, in these family businesses uh, to, the, to the max, basically. Uh, the pandemic has placed added pressures on many of these businesses, um, you know, forcing these, the leadership within these businesses to take uh, decisive decision-making to deal with both family issues, but business issues that come out of it. Um, You know, I'll quote uh, a recent survey, uh, a report that was done by KPMG, uh, that's called African Family Business Barometer. Uh, And it's interesting, uh, in summary, that report also um, echoes the the points I've just made around the challenges that family businesses uh, faced. But remarkably, what they found in that particular survey was less than 20% uh, of the family businesses responded by saying that they were significantly impacted 
and many generally remained optimistic for the future. So that's quite a positive, you know, significant message from the family business community. Uh, in terms of specific trends that we have seen or that we, you know, that we uh, hear from our family business stakeholders um, across the globe, across the region, including in Kenya, is, uh, is that um, a majority of uh, the family-owned businesses, despite the challenges on capital, on uh, cash flow, maintained their workforce. In fact, um, you know, the other collaborating partner for our event that we had was Grant Thornton in Kenya. And the managing partner of Grand Thornton in Kenya, in his introductory remarks, made that same very same point to say that throughout the pandemic, despite the challenges on cash flow, uh, the partners came together very early to say they're not going to let go of any of their staff and they maintain, in fact, have hired more staff. Uh, obviously, the other significant, uh, significant trend from a family business perspective and governance perspective is that because of the restrictions in travel, uh, what, meant, what, what, what that meant was that the family in, in its entirety was grounded, for example, in Kenya. So, you know, if you had a big, large family business that had uh, multi-jurisdictional operations, but because of the restrictions and travel restrictions and self-imposed isolations and, you know, trying to be careful, these, these family businesses or these family owners remained in one place. It gave them time to focus on their business. It gave them time to you know, focus on uh, improving the efficiency of their business. Um, and it, it gave them a chance at the governance structures within them. So now what you're seeing is the next generation coming through and getting involved in the business, etc. cetera. Uh, one last point from me, obviously a couple of other things that have also happened as a result of the pandemic. Because of the demographic that has been impacted by this pandemic, which is the patriarch, matriarch, or the, the uh, wealth creators generation being impacted because of age and underlying issues, etc., the conversation on succession and estate planning has also come to the front to say, you know, we need to get our house in order. Uh, and this is where, from a Jersey perspective, the organization and, and the jurisdiction that I represent, you know, we bring in that interna international aspect to that, that conversation. We bring in our international experience and have these kind of um, open and, and open and wide discussions with these family stakeholders. Uh, Honey, did you want to add anything? Yeah, no, thanks, Faisal. That was quite, quite well captured. <clears throat> I, I, you know, I do echo Faisal's sentiments on um, the effect. I'd say two things, uh, Wendiri. There's, there's the effect and the impact. Uh, there's two things that have happened over, over the past, say, we're looking at now over a year of, of, of this, this pandemic. Um, the effect and the impact, when I say the effect, what I mean is there's been negative effects and, and, and then there's been the positive impact that it's had on businesses. So what I mean is how well, what we've noticed is a lot of the businesses that have done well and persevered through this storm have uh, done so because they've been quick on their feet. They're willing to adapt to the changes. For me, what I found is the pandemic has fast forwarded an inevitable tech revolution. Uh, we were going there anyway. Um, uh, you know, with, with all these advances we're seeing, um, everyone's working from home. They're starting to, to find that they don't need large office spaces anymore. Um, they're able to scale. Um, without really renting more space. So a lot of our clients have now found that this new way of working might in essence be more efficient. The others who haven't been quick to adapt um, may have felt the effect. Um, so we're having to restructure their organizations. Um, they're having to cut off certain workforce, uh, make redundancies. So we've seen, you know, sort of a, two different um, um, effects coming out of the, the pandemic. Um, into, you know, I'm, I'm a lawyer, so one of the things that we see a lot is when there is an issue, when a business is unable to pay its rent or unable to pay its debt as they fall due, uh, our clients come back to us and ask us questions about the contracts that they are involved in and how they can mitigate their losses. So we, the first thing we look at is their structure. We found that a lot of family businesses the small to mid-tiered ones quite often um, don't have very formal structures. When I say this, 
every company has a constitution. They call it's called the memorandum and articles of association. And what you can do, and most most of the larger businesses do, is they then have a shareholders agreement which governs how decisions are made, what happens in the event of certain issues arising, transfer of shares, raising debt, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, when you don't have those structures in place, there, there tends to be a lot of confusion um, as to how to approach um, certain situations. That confusion then equates to delays. Um, so we found the small to tier businesses are now um, finding the necessity to approach lawyers and make these structures better if they, if they already have them and where they, they don't exist to work with us to implement better structures for decision-making, et cetera, um, so that they're able to deal with these issues better. I will, I'll talk more about things like succession um, and, and share sales later. Um, and the other thing we found is bailouts. Um, you know, debt is, you know, finding finance in, in Kenya, in East Africa is, is expensive, as, as you may know, Wandiri, um, especially now during the pandemic, a lot of uh, banks are hesitant to loan money to various companies, especially the smaller family businesses. Um, so they tend to rely on either personal loans um, or they'll go out to institutional investors um, and give up equity that shares in their companies for either a short term or a long period of time. Um, what that's done is, again, there's the effect and impact. Um, the maybe the negative effect for them is that they've had to lose a bit of control to institutional inve investors. But the positive impact is that they've seen having professional institutions come on board. They've found that there's a new expertise on board. They're benefiting from technological advances. And this has had a very positive impact on the growth of the family businesses coming out of, uh, of, of the pandemic into the new future we're in now. Uh, honey, honey, I really liked uh, your point, uh, your perspective about the impact on, of the pandemic. In terms of bringing a professional inst institution on board, I think that's a positive move that uh, was missing uh, in, uh, in family-owned business pre-pandemic. Uh, that takes me to my next, 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 next issue. There's, uh, in Kenya, we are seeing what we are calling the founder's curse. Uh, whereas, uh, when, when the founder dies or moves out of the company, there the, the are issues on business continuity and succession. And uh, Faisali also raised a very good issue on the pandemic effect on the demographic of the patriarchs and the matriarchs, uh, who are the wealth creators. Uh, what, what's, your, what's your... Hello? Hello, Wandiri? Yes. Uh, did you get the last part? So you, you want me to just give my uh, my uh, uh, take on the founder's curse? Yes, and uh, how now do we ensure that post-pandemic businesses, uh, family-owned businesses, ensure business continuity and uh, and successful succession process? Yes. No. That, interestingly, Wandiri, thank you for that very uh, very uh, pertinent question. Interestingly, this was the key topic during our webinar that I talked about the collaboration that we had with CMS and, and GT. Um, understandably, due to the sensitivities around the hard work, i.e. The, the blood, the sweat, the tears that the founders and the wealth creators have put into building their business empires. And, you know, we had a very uh, successful uh, wealth creator, patriarch on the panel, uh, Dr. Vora, um, and he talked about that very point to say that, you know, he started his business selling candies uh, for pennies, and then he grew it to the empire that it is now. And, you know, it, it, it was a challenge for him to accept that the next generation just steps in without putting its own work in. But, you know, this is a common feature, I can tell you, Wandiri, across the globe. We see this, whether it's in Kenya, whether it's in Nigeria, whether it's in Saudi Arabia, whether it's in UAE, Dubai, uh, or India. You know, this is the same challenges that you see across the globe. Um, you know, in fact, almost every culture has their own version of a proverb to capture this very point. So the Japanese say, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. And in, uh, and in you know, in Italy, the, it's, it's, uh, it's more around, um, the, you know, from the stable to the stars and back again. 
Uh, and then obviously, uh, the, the, the most famous of all is the Scottish uh, uh, saying that says, the father buys, the son builds, the grandchild sells, and his the grandchild's son then begs. So, you know, this is the kind of, and you know, there is statistics to come, there is statistics to support this, actually. So, you know, there's an estimated 70% of wealthy families lose their wealth by the second generation and 90% lose it by the third. Um, so, you know, the, the, the first point that you made, um, and, and, and you also touched on this one, dearly, is that the, you know, the patriarch um, is directly in control of the business. This, this has grown organically, but single-handedly because of what the patriarchs, you know, his own hard work and his own direction and strategy. So, so they naturally, as a result, result, the patriarch would want to be involved in every single decision, you know, whether it's to, you know, to talk about employee changes, whether it's to talk about changing furniture in the office, or whether it's talking about buying new cars, or the larger dis decisions around buying or selling or letting investors into it. So that often creates a lack of transparency in the decision-making pro uh, process. And you know, this, this uh, is, not, is no longer based around uh, the science of due diligence, which is what Honey and his team would do, that sit there, look at businesses, provide, you know, undertake due diligence if they're acting on behalf of a buyer, for example, or an investor coming into a business. So they, you know, this, this prevents that very critical uh, requirement to be transparent. The second, obviously, is uh, you know, from a next-gen perspective, the next generation is much more better educated. You know, the father, you know, we as parents, uh, Wanziri, want to make sure that we provide a better life for our children. And that same principle applies in every family on the globe. Everybody does things so that they're doing it better for their own children. So you find that the next generation in these family businesses are highly educated, educated in the West. They have Western ideas, and they no longer they, they no longer sort of support the views held by the patriarch in terms of uh, the direction of the business, the decision making of the business, and importantly and in, and increasingly, we also see that the next generation want to do business in different sectors. You know, they want to they want to. Honey uh, uh, touched on tech. Your next generation is tech savvy. They're uh, very conscious of their own time. They're very conscious of giving back to the community. These are the kind of this is the kind of uh, findings that we find that all the research that Jersey Finance has done over the years on this very topic around next generation and the succession. So what what happens is that you know an event like this pandemic gets minds focused and people are now thinking about these conversations. You know, there's a very important distinction to make here now in Ziri. One is around the succession of the business. You know, one is around the succession of the business, and that is governed by the, the corporate governance and the, uh, and the uh, documentation that, and, you know, the document. So you'll have, a, you'll have a succession plan for the business. And the other one is from a family perspective. You know, this is where the wealth itself and the ownership of that business needs to be dealt with. So these are two very, very distinct conversations. And what you find is, you know, um, Hani touched on this, and you also touched on this in the, a, a moment ago, which is when private investors come in. So in a, in, a, in a situation like this, you find family businesses are now struggling. They need to raise capital. They need investors to come in, or they're ambitious. They want to grow something. And when these investors come in, they need to be able to see not only transparently how the business operates, but they want to see a professional structure that is independent of the family. That can, so, so, you know, in the event there's an issue with the family, the business will survive. So they need to see this. So you get, then you get the introduction of the professional management team coming on board. So you see some of the most sophisticated businesses now, even in Kenya, and we had a fantastic example of that on the panel discussion that we had for the event. And we, we had uh, Mr. Amit Patel from the Ramco Group. You know, he's, th that group is an example of how, uh, these, how successfully uh, external investors came into the group. And that the operation of that business changed completely. So they, you know, they have professionalized structures, board of directors, non-executive directors. They have an independent CFO, CEO. These are the kind of 
uh, immediate uh, you know impact that can uh, that that they can uh, that can lead a business into a successful transition from the one man show to you know to a professionalized structure the other the other obviously the other issues that um, I'll, I'll very quickly touch on i'm sure uh, um, honey wants to add uh, add to my conversation here or add to my remarks but i think you know from a family you know, from a next generation perspective another trend we see is that um, you know the the patriarch will say look you know what i have uh, you know i have um, built this and i, I you know for your own credibility, my son, my daughter, my nephew, my niece, I would like you to go and work through the system, understand how each department or you know, some of that operation works before you can get to the, uh, you know, to, to take over or get a senior position in the business. You get that and some children do that because they're passionate about coming back and improving that efficiency in that business. Other times what you find is the patriarch comes in and says, you know what, here, daughter, son, you do your venture. Let's see how successful you are, and we'll integrate you over time. You know, you, what one thing you should, uh, one thing that should have been clear from what I've just said, Wanziri, is that, you know, this kind of transition isn't an overnight thing. You know, it takes months, years, in fact, to get to to integrate the next generation into this new generation, and to make sure the patriarch or the matriarch's expectations are managed well. The, the bottom line is, and we've, we see this across the globe again, including in Kenya, if the patriarch and the, the next generation or the family get into a dispute, they can't agree the succession of the business or the succession of the family, the estate planning around the family, and the patriarch dies suddenly as a result of that, the family business is decimated. The disputes that arise you know, raise that once mighty large family business to to the ground effectively and you know, it, it, the business itself suffers thank you faisal for that uh, i think what i got uh, to sum it up is that uh, transition and uh, succession in family owned businesses is, is not an overnight activity it takes time correct yes honey do you have anything to add on that yes i do <laughs> i do wonder uh, i think faisal's captured it quite well um, I always sort of add that legal perspective to everything in terms of um, what, what, what I'm seeing. Um, and, you know, I don't know, Faisal, if you mentioned st statistically that interesting fact that we discussed uh, before our last event, where, interestingly, globally, just 30% of family businesses make it through the second generation, with only 13% passing three generations. Um, and that, you know, Faisal has spoken to why that happens. And a lot of that why can be answered with not having succession planning. And when we say succession planning, what we mean is if you look at a conventional business that is successful um, and the performance plans behind people coming up the ladder or where they're being integrated from other organizations, that may be lacking because the family wants to pass the business down between its own members. Sometimes that's done without any structure, any training or any performance plans. Um, and therefore you get someone who's passed on the baton who may not quite understand exactly what the previous generation's goals, vision for the company were, et cetera. Not only that, they may have had an informal way of making decisions that wasn't documented well enough. And therefore you find the second generation is ultimately running a completely different business, uh, albeit you know, in the same industry. And therefore you may find certain failures arising. Um, for, for one of the key things, and just based on my experience, um, having sat down with certain families is the element of cost. And, you know, um, a lot of uh, family businesses may, 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 may hide from lawyers or, you know, um, speaking to advisors who may guide them on these things because they're worried about that initial cost. But, you know, Wandiri, as you know, with every business, in order for you to be successful, you have to invest in your business. Now, the, a simple document such as a shareholders agreement, um, I've sat down with many families and said to them, you know, this is your problem. Let me have a look at your shareholders agreement. And they don't have that. And most of the time they'll say to me, ah, we did discuss this with our lawyers, but we thought we didn't really need it at the time. Um, and it's very, very important for your listeners to understand that a simple document like a shareholders agreement 
can do so many things to in mitigate losses in the future. Um, it's a document that talks about succession. What happens if someone passes away, a key member of the organization? What happens when you need to make a decision, when you need to borrow, uh, when you need to transfer shares? It governs so many different but very key decisions. And that's what we found has been missing. In terms of the founder's curse, again, that is something uh, we found, um, and I, I just touched on this earlier, meritocracy, you know, a lot, of, a lot of these businesses aren't really built on merits. So whoever's coming up the, the ladder in the family businesses uh, may not necessarily possess the right skills. And Faisal touched on it earlier. We had a panelist on our event, um, and, you know, the, this is the Ramco group who talked about um, the, the, the training that they have for not just their family, but for other key management personnel that they've recruited into their business so that it's just not the family making certain decisions. It's, it's, it's experts that they've, they've hired and who sit on their boards alongside the family to provide guidance, mentorship, and training so that when the family's next generation are taking over, they have the right skills and are able to take the helm. Thank you, thank you. Um, that, that takes me to if 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 uh, if family-owned business, the, there is the one thing they learned is about uh, planning for for their business continuity. And what I've gotten from the discussion is that uh, they got uh, professional management uh, coming, and also most of them adopted technology as a as a way to run their affairs. What what do you think are, are other priorities you're seeing for for family-owned businesses as they recover from the pandemic? Right. Uh, Faisal, do you want me to take that? Yeah, start that. Go, go, go for it. So I think one of the key issues, Wanderi, is um, in these testing times, especially people in the service industry, um, you've seen that hotels have taken a big hit in Kenya. Um, and what norm normally tends to happen is uh, businesses sit back and wait for government to do something to mitigate their losses. Uh, and sometimes before those decisions are ma made, certain losses have already occurred. I, I touched on this much earlier. You have hotels that may be leasing a lot of space. They may be, you know, very cost, uh, you know, cost-centric and they're, they're unable to mitigate these losses because as it is in Kenya, it's very seasonal, the leisure industry. So you already have that, that one window that they depend on. Now, when, when they, they're unable to raise the revenue, they can't meet their costs, they need to raise finance. Um, what, what happens then? They rely on the banks. Uh, banks have very high interest rates. So then they look elsewhere. And this is why in East Africa, we found that a lot of the private equity funds, the ones involved in debt finance, institutional investors tend to be the ones that come in and save the day. Um, but before they do that, these companies, their priorities now are, it's, it's not as simple as we're looking for a million dollars. Can you help us? the first thing they're going to do is conduct an audit or due diligence on these companies to see that their books are in order, their leases, their contracts, their licenses, their permits are all up to date. Now, what we're finding now is that a lot of family businesses are very alive to this fact, and they know they may need to work for finance, be it debt or equity finance. And in order to do that, they're getting us, the advisors on board and saying, make us ready. We want to be, we want to have our books in order, our company in order, um, so that when we approach these third parties, the due diligence process is expedited and our houses in order. But what that does is, and I talked about the effect and impact, the two different things. The effect may be they have to spend a little bit of money to get their house in order, to bring their books up to scratch, et cetera, et cetera. But the positive impact this is having is that we're finding that these, new, these family businesses are becoming more sophisticated, more efficient through this process, and are realizing that this is something they should have done in any case, because the businesses now are more fluid, and they're able to do things much easily, um, and, and things are happening at a faster rate. And that's what we're, we're, we're seeing, Wanderi. Okay, Faisal? Yeah, I, I, thanks, Wanderi, and thanks, uh, Honey. I think uh, 
just from my side, just to add uh, one or two points. Uh, one of the other things that was clear from the pandemic, uh, one of the trends that was clear from the pandemic, is because a lot of the uh, a lot of the family businesses focused on their local markets. So you know uh, the the survey, the KPMG survey that I talked about. One of the other things that 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 also found similarly was that because of the restrictions around travel, because of uh, you know having to get their house in order for various reasons in their own local markets, most of these businesses focused on their local market, trying to make sure that they survive through this crisis. Um, so they, I wouldn't say neglected the international or the cross-border stuff, but they weren't able to, or they, they, they decided strategically, a majority of them decided strategically to rely more on their local markets. So obviously the opportunities and some of, you know, some of the priorities that will now be there for family businesses, okay, how do we get out of the local market and reinvent ourselves, not only, for example, for the East African region, but you know, when Ziri, we have the Africa Free Trade uh, Continental Area that was launched in January. That is a huge opportunity for Kenyan uh, family businesses specifically. Kenya was the first signatory to that agreement. It was the first country to ratify and deposit its, uh, uh, you know, its, its, uh, its uh, legislation with the Secretariat. You know, it's been the driving force, I would say, behind this uh, Pan-African agreement. And the, and, and the family businesses in this region, in Kenya, are very well placed to, to take benefit, full benefit of this opening up of you know, or three trillion, you know, estimated three trillion dollar market uh, that will be once it's fully realized. So that is one area. So there'll be you know, the, another, uh, another sort of a consider, a priority area for these family businesses will be expansion of markets and these kind of tools will support it. I know the government of Kenya will fully support them in their endeavors to do that. The other is the sector focuses. You know, we talked about tech and how tech has been a lifesaver, uh, you know, for people that have been uh, going through this uh, uh, pandemic, not only businesses, but actually individuals. You and I were ordering our food when we were not allowed to leave home, were, you know, or you're doing all of our e-commerce, et cetera, all on the phones. You know, as you know, Kenya, again, has been a pioneer in this, you know, especially around the e-wallet and you know the the um, uh, you know the media side, the telecom side. Kenya has been a leader with this. So I think even in the sector focuses uh, for family businesses, that will also grow. So you know you'll see um, we, we see a lot of uh, impact funders coming into this region. So you know anything that relates to impact to community will be something that family businesses can expand into. Whether that is uh, housing, whether that is agriculture, whether that is healthcare, you know, whether that is education, you know, it's 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 impact, but with commercial returns. So this is the new sort of becoming the new norm of investors coming into the uh, into this region. Um, and then obviously it's 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 you know it it goes goes without saying that hand in hand with what you're doing on the family business operation. Families also need to make sure that they preserve that they preserve their wealth, uh, so that that wealth is there for the following generations to come in. But also, as a result of that, the business itself survives. So you know, the governance and planning around that family side should go in hand in hand with the uh, you know with the uh, the, the uh, succession of the family. Family in the business should go hand in hand. So. People like Hani um, and other professional services advisors, you know, are a hand to support them execute that in a way that preserves and and, uh, and expands their business. Interesting point, Faisal, uh, on the, some of the priorities uh, family-owned businesses should look into. Uh, Hani, this is directed to you. What 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 was the government support you saw for family-owned businesses, and uh, what are you seeing currently now that? Uh, we can't say that the pandemic has been just long enough. What, what have you seen since the when the pandemic came immediately, uh, a few months later, and then now? What, what are you seeing? Again, you see, it's it's one of those cases uh, where the government um, has to juggle two things. Number one, the Kenyan government has been, you know, providing various economical uh, stimulus measures. You know, we've seen tax cuts. 
the MPC, MPC policy rates and reducing cash reserve ratios. Um, there has been industry specific packages um, and there's been various moratoriums on repayments of loans that, that, that have been put, put in place. We saw a VAT cut from 16 to 14%, which has now come back to 16%. And this is, this is interesting because in Kenya, uh, one day you and I both know we're not out of the pandemic. In fact, um, you know, our president spoke very recently and talked about this new third wave, um, which means that we're, we're not opening up the markets. In fact, we're still where we were. If we go back 12 months to date, the numbers are probably higher statistically. And that means businesses are suffering worse, if not the same. At the, at the time, a year ago, they may have had cash reserves. And by now, these have been depleted. And we've seen that government has started to withdraw some of these uh, incentives that were initially there. Take, for example, the VAT that's gone back up. Um, and that now means that there's, there's an added strain and businesses have to be more independent about making it through without relying too much on, these, uh, go on government intervention. And at the same time, we have to also understand that government is doing what it can but it must also meet its own obligations in raising enough finance uh, in order to govern, to govern the country. We have a lot of uh, projects that are ongoing that are not cheap and these need to be financed. We have um, quite a lot of debt that Kenya owes and that needs to be financed. Therefore, there's so much the government can do. And my view is that the government provided a buffer and in that buffer period, businesses who were quick on their feet were able to take advantage of the moratoriums, the, the fiscal uh, incentives that they were provided and react. Now, those who didn't and expected that we'd continue in perpetuity with all these incentives are now you know, starting to struggle. So the key, the key issue there is you need to be quick to adapt. Need to, when, when, whenever you're given these incentives, you, know, you have to understand that these are interim buffers, not long-term measures and therefore act quickly. Uh, and that's what we've seen across East Africa. It's a different story. Of course, each government has provided different packages. Um, you know, one of the things that we found is an, uh, doing business may have been made a bit more difficult because a lot of our registries are operating at, at, at um, you know, they've cut the numbers of, of workers or staff working in, in government, in the courts, for example, Kenya has been very quick to have an online court system. Again, it's dependent on technology. Um, the company's registry may not have as many staff as it did before, which then means that things are getting delayed. Companies aren't being incorporated as fast as they once were. Um, the land's registry, again, you don't have the same workforce there because of the COVID protocols in place. Um, so it's again, the effect and impact situation um, so we're finding that there are delays, business isn't as fast as it was, but the governments are finding new innovative ways to, to make, this, make this work for everyone. In Kenya, we're going onto electronic uh, platforms. I believe the company's registry is almost there so that you should be able to incorporate um, and effect all changes online. Um, again, for immigration, I believe we're moving towards that. Um, even in the aviation sector, sector, you can now apply for permits for, say, you know, drones online. So we're finding that the, not just businesses, and as Faisal touched on earlier, uh, having to move to, to you know, these technological advances, which then also equate to cost efficiencies, the government's doing the same thing, and we're moving towards a new way of working. Uh, interesting. I, I, I like uh, I like about the the government adoption of um, of digital digital services. Uh, where, where where currently I am, I think I'm seeing that more uh, firms firms are coming and applying uh, online, and the only thing that uh, requires physical physical meeting is the is the collection of the certificate per se. But everything else, it's happening online, which I, which I think is a very bold move from the government in Kenya. Faisal, do you have anything to add on the government support you saw? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, you know, uh, Hani has summed that up very well, and I totally concur with you, uh, Wanjiri. I think 
Uh, E-government is a buzzword in most of the markets that I operate in. Uh, as I mentioned, I cover a very large geographical area, so I have the advantage of having, you know, having the, uh, a bird's eye view on what is going on in those markets. And technology has definitely been the savior. Governments realize it, private sector realize it, so they're investing heavily in it. You know, fintech itself uh, as a sector is now a mature sector where a lot of investment is being directed. Kenya, Nigeria, South Africa are hubs in Africa uh, that are producing uh, uh, winning innovative ideas and technological breakthroughs that are being used across the globe. So, you know, that is a very, very important uh, factor in, in terms of uh, the future um, of, of both government operation, but also family businesses. In terms of, uh, in terms of government support, uh, the, the one point that I will make, and this has been quite impressive and very interesting, Wanziri, is that you know, when, at the outset of, of this pandemic, when you know when it hit, the, you know, across the globe, and we were in this position where the governments had no choice but to act and start start introducing restrictions to movement and gathering, etc., the public sector came together very quickly with the private sector. And you saw this in Kenya, you saw this in Nigeria, you saw this in South Africa, you saw this in the Middle East, you saw this in Asia. You know, they came up, they created this public-private partnership to support the impact on this. And then you had the development finance institutions from, from the globe, like, for example, the UK and the US one, that supported these initiatives to make sure that all of us worked together to come out of this um, you know, to come out of this, uh, you know, this this crisis, and you know, I have never in my previous, you know, in my previous experience over the last 20, 25 years, never seen something mobilized so quickly and at such a scale across the globe. You know, in Nigeria, you had Nollywood uh, actors and sports people coming together. In Kenya, you had big businesses coming in. You know, you had your uh, big, large conglomerates coming in, dedicating funding and expertise into this. So that was a very, very encouraging thing, and it took everybody together uh, in it. So I mean, that was that's just an observation I make, and it makes life a lot easier because I think the one point in all of this uh, doom gloom conversation is that obviously the, the the demand is there in the economy. In theory, what has happened is that the actions that have been taken by governments across uh, you know across the globe, including in Kenya has been as a result of not uh, not anything specific in the economy, but there's been ex, you know, factors outside the economy, you know, this, this virus that has caused havoc. So in, in theory, there is that demand in the economy, and I'm not an economist, but I will say that a lot of people now expect, once these restrictions, you know, you've got the vaccination drive that's coming through, uh, you know, Kenya has had its first vaccinations come through, and as, as we get to that the end of that tunnel, We'll see this positivity coming out. The demand should pick up. And in family businesses, if they innovate, if they get themselves prepared, um, uh, and, and, and if the government gets this unique balancing act right, then, you know, it's there's, there's so much uh, positivity around coming out of this pandemic, you know, with all of the, all of the work that's being done around um, the regional trading blocks, the uh, continental trading blocks, the markets are opening up for entrepreneurs, family businesses and institutions to go out there and create wealth, get people doing, you know, get people moving and working again. So, you know, the, all these, this delicate balancing act that Hani talked about, we're in the midst of this. So sometimes, you know, it's sometimes it's useful just to take a step back and say, okay, hang on, what are we talking about here? What is the end? And this is the end that we see. There's a lot of potential. Africa and specifically East Africa is still a favorite for international investors from an FDI perspective. They all want to come into, uh, into the region. They want to be part of the story in Kenya. They want to be part of the engagement in, with, the, with your entrepreneurs there, with your inventors in Kenya, because that's where the big ideas are coming out from. Uh, uh, coming back to East Africa, what are some of the emerging trends you are seeing across uh, East Africa for family-owned businesses? 
I think this uh, this uh, may be an extension of the priorities. If you can uh, expound on that, emerging trends for family-owned businesses across East Africa. I, I, I think from my side, Wanziri, I think um, you know there's there's three ways to look at the emerging trends, and I would sort of bottle them down into you know expansion in the markets, which I've already touched on. Uh, and this is going to be a huge thing to look at from a family business perspective. And then there's the expansion in the sectors itself. So, you know, the, the whereas traditionally you would have been you know, a family business that focused on one particular sector, all of the sectors all of a sudden are open to you because of the efficient use of technology or you're hiring, hiring external people, you know, some of the trends that we've already talked about. So that's going to be another area where you know you'll you'll find businesses becoming multi-sector operators, uh, and then there's the expansion in capability and capacity. So you know you African demographic, it's a young demographic. You, you it's got the highest number of under 30s in the world, and you know from an East African perspective, you have a young population, a very educated population that is there, ready to in a very you know a growing middle class. That is also going to feed into this private sector uh, dialogue around expansion of the business itself. I would, in addition to the points that we've already made, I would touch on these three. I mean, we've, we've touched on finance, we've touched on uh, technology, we've touched on governance, uh, you know, we've touched on the, the, the need to hire external management, um, especially when it comes to introducing finance or investors into your business. But in addition, I would, I would also bring in these three sort of uh, areas. Yeah, and, and and to build on what Faisal said, I think Wandiri, Kenya and East Africa, well, with with Kenya a lot, I've seen that you know we are we have a lot of entrepreneurs, uh, very innovative uh, entrepreneurs. We have a young workforce, and we found that you know it's sort of sort of like the Silicon Valley, if you like, when you look at things like M-Pesa and where we came from with that. Um, now in the pandemic, a lot of people are embracing this digital revolution. Um, it's amazing how, how many apps we now have uh, for food deliveries, um, grocery deliveries. You have farmers that have you know, gone online and they're joining various platforms to deliver things like you know, your basic vegetables to people's apartments, uh, cleaning services uh, online, again, fumigation services, very interestingly. You know, I personally was looking for services and was amazed at what Kenyans are doing uh, to, to adapt in, in, in these new times. Um, you know, gone are the days of the yellow pages, gone are the days of, you know, going over to someone's office to, to get someone to come to your house to provide you with a service. It's all online. And this is, a, a, this is you know, a direct effect of what the pandemic has done. It's basically meant that we can do business just sitting at our desks. We can do our shopping, we can get uh, our taxis, if you look at the number of taxis and border, border riders included, and this cuts across, um, you know, all types of labor from, you know, simple motorcycle riders all the way up to accountants, lawyers, bankers. Um, they're all providing some sort of service. If you look at the, you know, the Glovos out there, the Ubers out there, and then even look at the banks and the platforms they're providing, uh, M-Pesa has been extremely crucial uh, at a time like this for people to transact um, and, and uh, pass uh, pay, pay certain workers. We have clients in the construction um, uh, sector who pay their workers uh, via M-Pesa uh, because cash was becoming an issue. As you may know, in Kenya, a lot of uh, retailers, et cetera, were not accepting cash because of the pandemic um, and M-Pesa proved to be crucial. Um, so we've seen that that revolution get fast tracked. It was coming anyway, but you know Kenyans, being who they are, have embraced this and they've done extremely well. You know, and I, I would commend um, all the Kenyans and everyone in East Africa for 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 what they've done. Um, it's it, it's very good to see that 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 happen. That, that's uh, that's good. Uh, one one of the probably the as I sum, as I as I sum up my interview with you guys, uh, what I've gotten uh, what you've, what you've zeroed in is that the pandemic really led to high cost and affected the 
the cash flow of, of our family owned businesses. And you mentioned something to do with the private investors. At this juncture, uh, Faisal and Hani, I would like you to highlight uh, on the entry of venture capital and uh, private equity in, uh, in uh, family owned businesses. So, um, I mean, Faisal, do you want to take that or? No, no, go, go for it. I'll, 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 I'll add on at the end. Yeah, we, we, we see this a lot. And like I said, one day at the beginning, now with the private equity um, and, and VENCAP uh, organizations, what they tend to look at essentially is I want to put money into a business in return for either equity or return on my finance. So there's both the debt and the equity element. Some focus on just providing loans um, and others want to participate as shareholders in the company typically between three to five years, but that's been changing. What, 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 what they call that is their pipeline. So a lot of them will have specific industries in mind. Some will say we're investing in agriculture only. Others are quite open. Um, they may be open to leisure, education, uh, manufacturing, etc. Now, what they tend to do is, it's, is, is they would take an approach just as a bank would um, I, would say, I would say slightly more lenient because there's, they have their own internal approaches to this and they conduct what, is, what, what, what we, we, we term a due diligence, which happens uh, both on a financial level, on a legal level, and of course, they look at the reputation of the business. They don't, and, and when they're looking at their pipeline, a lot of them tend to look at brownfield investments as opposed to greenfield investments. And what I mean by that is, they look at a business that shows a promising, uh, that has shown a promising trajectory that they've done so far and it is scalable. Um, and that in these times, what they're looking for is a business that, but for the pandemic, would have been doing very well or thriving. And what they need is a capital injection. But that is now coupled with their conditions. And when I say their conditions, they also bring on expertise. So they have consultants on their teams and they will take normally a minority position in a family business that could range from anything between 10 to 30 percent, depending on how much investment they're bringing on board. But they're not your typical bank whereby they send you the money, uh, close their doors and hope that you pay them back. They get involved very intrinsically with the business. They, they, they want to be part of the decision making matters. They, they insist on reserved matters, both on the board level, on the shareholder level, um, in order that they have some kind of oversight on where the investment is going. Um, and upon achieving certain targets, sometimes they break the investment into different series. So they'll say, we'll give you X tranche of money for the first 24 months, provided you achieve the following targets. If they achieve those targets, they then move into a different series where the balance of the investment is then injected and that safe, safeguards their interest. Now, for the family businesses, they end up seeing uh, um, you know, an expert consultancy team now joining them that has done this in other regions, not just Kenya, they tend to be international and are bringing in tried and tested methodologies into their businesses and helping them scale. So it's, it's a two-pronged approach. They bring in the managerial aspect, they bring in the finance, and they're able to assist these family businesses to, to, to become more sophisticated and more profitable in the long run, which is why initially I said a lot of the businesses are now conducting what we call internal due diligences and becoming investor ready. So by the time these institutional investors are looking at them, they're able to say, here's our file, we are ready, um, and that fast tracks the, the whole relationship um, and they're able to get access to, to these, these facilities um, at, 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 you know, at a quicker rate. Uh, that's, uh, that's good. Uh, Faisal? Yeah, just, uh, I think from my side, just to, just to um, I think that's an excellent uh, overview um, of both private equity and venture capital. I will just add if I can, um, you know, I, I talked about them, I talked about impact investors earlier, and they can also come in on both sort of uh, stream, and they come in on a blended finance basis, which is a combination of both debt and equity uh, to, in, to, to, to ensure that the cost of that 
capital coming into the business is a bit more manageable than just, for example, debt or just, for example, investment. Um, so that, I think the, the impact invest, investors increasingly are coming at in, uh, into a business on that blended finance platform. It's very, very popular within emerging economies like Kenya and the rest of East Africa. Um, uh, Hani touched on this, the need to be professional uh, and the professionalization process starts very early before these investors come in. Um, and, you know, we, uh, from a Jersey finance perspective or Jersey jurisdictional perspective, you know, this is one of the key points about transparency. I touched on this, you know, investors coming in are looking for this. So there will be professional reporting uh, requirements. They will want to see management accounts. They'll want to see periodic financial statements. This would all be built into the relationship. So it becomes very intrusive. If the family businesses move away from closed shop, to very much open. I mean, obviously it's still very private to the investors, but they'll want to get into the nitty gritty, into the nuts and bolts of that business. Um, uh, Hani touched on this one other point, investment horizons are different. Your typical, uh, your typical venture capitalist private equity will be a shorter horizon, whereas the impact investors will come in at a larger, longer horizon. They'll, be, they'll give a bit more time for their capital to settle into that business. And the reason I'm bringing I keep bringing this third form of, so to speak, finance into it is because a lot of focus of that, these kind of investors from an institutional perspective coming into Africa, whether it's from the US, whether it's from the from Europe, um, you know, whether it's from the Far East, we see increasingly them using Jersey platforms to come into Africa, including into Kenya. And obviously, they all want to look for a profitable exit. That's the other thing. Um, you know, they want to be able to not only see profit from a monetary perspective, they want to see profit from a human perspective, impact perspective. You know, has our agricultural business made an impact, not only from a financial perspective for the shareholders, but what has it done to the community? What has it done to the uh, goals of the government, et cetera, et cetera? So that's another uh, thing to, you know, sort of uh, bear in mind. And then uh, the final point from me, Wanziri, is, um, uh, and Hani touched on this, um, which is, the active, but also the passive investors. And from a, you know, from a Kenyan perspective, what you find is that the stronger the business, the less likely the new investors uh, would be active in the in involvement. They would just come in, limit their involvement to uh, directorships, perhaps on the board itself, um, and keep minority um, decision-making, and it just sort of reserve some strategic or important decisions where they have the right to veto. Whereas, you know, uh, if it's a situation where we are in now, which is, you know, which we've talked about throughout this uh, interview, where the family itself, its business itself may be struggling, or it needs this capital injection to expand, the dynamic has changed, the dynamic changes. So what then happens is then you get active uh, investments coming in. So these in investors would come in and want to actively be part of that decision within, running of the, within the running of that business. And I go back to the point that I made earlier. What that then means is that the they will look for adequately qualified professional professionals running the business. So you know it can be a family member who's a CEO, but it needs to be somebody that understands the role of a CEO. You know it can be a family member that can be a CFO, but it needs to be somebody that is professionally qualified and able to take that CFO role for that family business. So, you know, this is, in the long run, it's very good for everybody. It's very good for the economy. It's very good for the family business. It's very good for the ecosystem that that family business operates in because it, in the long run, it it ensures that by hook or by crook, by, you know, you're, you're forced to professionalize. So, you know, the, the journey starts, it's entirely like, like Han, the point that Honey makes. Are you going to be proactive as a family and say, you know what, actually we need to, take our steps together now and start making a move now, get ourselves ready? Or are you going to be one of those that reactive, you know, that, that you know, is going to wait for a situation to arise and you are then put under pressure? Whatever route you take, Wanjiri, the point is the future is in professionalizing. The future is in making sure your systems are in place, your shareholders agreement, family charters, whatever you call them are in place from a family perspective, but also succession in the business is in place. You know, the succession in that business is in place so that you, you know, you can, uh, you know, you can uh, 
um, you know, you can then, you know, make sure that both are running in tandem and the family wealth, family business, all the employees that are employed and have a livelihood from this business are preserved for the future. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Faisal, for that uh, parting shot. Uh, there's a lot of uh, points to take home for four million businesses and our listeners in today's episode. And uh, thank you, Faisal and Hani, for making for making time out of your busy schedule to come and be with, uh, with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. It's been our pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, Wondarian team.